the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Welcome along to the podcast uh, today, spending some time with Glenn Gore from Amazon Web Services. Welcome to the show, Glenn. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me. Well, you've just flown in from London, I believe. Yeah, it's a, uh, coming from London to New Zealand, I realized halfway through I'm out of movies and I've still got a long way to go. <laughs> So do you do a fair bit of uh, traveling in your current role? Because you've, uh, you've been through, I guess, a number of roles since you've been at Amazon. Yeah, so the current role is you know, kind of chief architect for AWS globally. At the moment, I'm averaging one to two countries a week at the moment. But uh, to be fair, that's in Europe where things are pretty close. Yeah, it certainly is a bit, uh, bit easier to you know, travel from one country to the next when uh, they're not, not so far away. But yeah. more, more of a hike from New Zealand and, yeah, it's and a lot Australia. Better, a lot better than doing it when you're in uh, APAC and it's still six, eight hours flight. Yeah. Well, I thought it'd be good to hear a little bit about your journey in the tech world because we have a lot of people listening um, you know, that, have, that have had their own journeys or maybe they're at the beginning of the journey or you know, further on down the track. And you know, you've managed to uh, to do pretty well in terms of the roles that uh, that you've held, uh, both in uh, in Australia and uh, and then internationally with uh, with Amazon. So, how did you start out? How did you end up in the tech world? What brought you into the world of of technology and uh, geekdom? Yeah, look, it all started with a Commodore sixty four. To be honest, uh, you know, I was lucky. My dad bought one because uh, he wanted to. You know, kind of had a business and was experimenting with what a computer could do and I used to watch over his shoulder and when he went away I would kind of try to type in what he had been typing in poor guy he kind of kept wondering why the computer kept deleting his things never realizing it was me uh, and that got me interested in this passion for IT and how you know by writing commands on a keyboard you kind of change the way this computer could work and uh, went from there to yeah, I was lucky enough to go to Australia's first technology high school. Uh, it was Guy Mir out of Sydney. And we were playing around with Lego and robotics and being able to program with the Lego Mindstorms when it was first introduced and design and technology as the first course of that as part of the curriculum. And just was absolutely fascinated by it. Uh, and then I actually dropped out of high school. And So what, what, what year was this? Because there wasn't robotics when I went to school, so you're certainly younger than me. This is uh, kind of 1990 uh, yeah. when I went into high school, and I dropped out about 1994. So okay. uh, it's quite yeah. a while ago now. <laughs> cool. And, uh, yeah, so... Uh, then went in and worked for a startup at the time called Aussie Mail, which was uh, kind of Australia's largest ISP, where you know we still we used to buy dial-up on a 14.4k modem at five dollars an hour, and uh, started in tech support, helping people connect, and uh, kind of just rapidly realized I had this passion for technology and kind of understanding complex systems and pulling it apart and uh, from Aussie Mail was bought by UUNet in 1998 and they gave me exposure to the world's largest uh, internet backbone provider in the world so got to travel around the world with UUNet and then that was then part of MCI Worldcom so I went through the uh, ups and downs going through chapter 11 for uh, that which was Interesting, and then uh, was hired by Web Central, which was Australia's largest hosting company, and so moved to Brisbane and really got to learn about hosting technologies, which was in some ways the forerunner for what cloud computing uh, is these days. Right. So, uh, walk us through what sort of technologies did they have, and what was your what was your part in uh, 
you know, managing that or supporting it, architecting it, and so on? Yeah, so at Web Central, it's hired as their chief architect, uh, or actually the chief infrastructure architect, which gave me the title CIA, which was pretty funny. <laughs> uh, but that was really actually about, they were still using physical hardware, and so every single customer, each website, would run on a physical, it was IBM X336s at the time, and... I had this idea that could we bring virtualization into the hosting industry? And so I was hired and straight away kind of started working with VMware about how could we use virtualization to run mission-critical workloads. And that at the time, this is 2006 now, and that was kind of groundbreaking because VMware were like, hang on, you want to use this for production workloads instead of just test and dev, which is where virtualization was being using. And so we really you know, kind of spearheaded this using VMware for the management capabilities and completely transformed the business uh, as a result of doing that and got exposed to a lot of technologies around you know, shared storage systems, distributed networking, distributed architectures, you know, how you manage these quite complex environments. And uh, interestingly, it was a big Microsoft stack running on top of that VMware environment. So it was a really interesting integration of these different technologies uh, at the right. time. Right, so lots of win- Windows servers. A lot of Windows servers, yeah, a lot of licensing. Yeah, okay. And what did, you, what did you do from there? What did you ultimately manage to achieve with your virtualization and uh, how long did you stay around? Yeah, so I was there for about nine years. So Web Central was bought out by Melbourne IT and uh, became their CTO. It was really interesting because then you were playing with uh, one of the biggest DNS providers at the time, which in some ways is an incredibly simple service at the end of the day, but it's incredibly critical uh, to the running of the internet and running it reliably is actually incredibly complex uh, through to image, uh, not image, but to brand protection for some of the biggest companies where we would look at how brands were being used online. So for example, were they having fraudulent domains registered or fraudulent websites and started actually playing around with the use of AI and machine learning in that space. And yeah, this is back 2010, 2011, so still early days in this space. And you know, it was really interesting, again, just seeing how to scale that up at the scale of how do you find fraud on something as big as the internet, which is just massive. So what what sorts of things in particular did you know were you able to track and find and, and discover? It was just the... What's interesting is if you want to see the greatest creativity, look for illegal behavior. I mean, yeah. they've got everything to gain by trying to game the system. And so I was just always amazed that we would shut them down and then they'd just reappear. It was like a game of whack-a-mole. And it was like, a, it was like an arms race, basically. As we learned new techniques, they would learn new techniques. And it was just this constant evolution. And you, know, you used to see this, in, for example, in spam and anti-spam systems where you know, you'd kill off a certain type of spam and it would go quiet for a week or two and then suddenly it'd be back with a vengeance. And it was very similar in the, uh, in the brand protection space as well. Right. So what did that brand protection space sort of look like? Was it people using stolen credit cards to sort of, you know, register variants on, on people's, uh, you know, brand names online? Or it was what? more actually counterfeit goods. So you can imagine yeah, okay. you're looking after brands like Louis Vuitton and okay. Chanel. And right. so, you know, out of, for example, China where they're manufacturing counterfeit goods, that actually create websites and they would look exactly the same as the real site but you wouldn't know whether the domain was correct or not on the website so you'd be buying what you thought might have been legitimate goods but in reality it was just counterfeit and so that's actually quite a big problem uh, on the internet yeah and certainly uh, continues on today it does continue on um 
and and you could say maybe made easier by uh, by how how quick and easy it is to set things up on online with with cloud platforms and so on. Um, so it's it's something where uh, I imagine that there's still plenty of work going on to uh, uh, to try and track these these sort the, uh, of uh, organisations down. The battle continues. Yeah, oh. yeah. So from there to Amazon, how did how did that happen? What was it that um, that that sparked that move for you? Yeah, it was really interesting. So, you know, at this point, I was CTO for Melbourne IT. And, uh, you know, I remember there was this day where I was sitting in my office and I was coming up with the next uh, version of our architecture for the hosting platform. And I just couldn't get the cost model to work against this competitor called AWS. And I kept playing with the numbers and I would, you know, call IBM, I would call EMC, VMware, and just put pressure on pricing. And then I thought, what happens if they just gave me all the hardware and software for free? And so the only thing I had to pay for was just the OPEX cost of the the staff to run this equipment. And I plugged it into the spreadsheet and I still couldn't get close to the cost model. And that was a a moment when I realized a battle had just been won uh, and I wasn't at the time on the winning side. And so it required a transition of the business from owning and building its own infrastructure to looking to how to partner with uh, the big global cloud providers. And at that point, I thought, actually, what I'm passionate about is being on that kind of big scale side. And so I chose at that time to try and uh, see if Amazon would uh, hire me. Oh, that's good. And so what role, what did you start out doing at, uh, at Amazon? Yeah, so my first role at Amazon was uh, being the manager of the solutions architecture team for ANZ and uh, wearing a hat as uh, managing the uh, Asia-Pacific team as well. And then very quickly within 10 months, uh, flipped that around and was lucky to have a great uh, candidate internally who could took over Australia for me and then just focused on APAC and uh, ran that for four years. Right, and that saw you being based out of, uh, out of Singapore for a period? Yeah, I think I kind of look at it as I paid taxes out of Singapore, but uh, spent everywhere, all my time in different countries, you know, Korea, India was absolutely fascinating for me, you know, just the scale and, you know, talking to a startup and, you know, talk about, oh, we hope we're going to be successful, we've got a million people. And you're like, and in any other country, a million people would be a very successful startup. But in India, you know, it's just that sense of scale, it just blows your mind. So how how do you uh, how do you think that the cloud computing you know revolution has um, you know transformed the opportunities for for startups and you know and for instance India? So I think the the thing cloud computing has really done is it leveled the playing field. And if I go back to you know, when I was at Aussie Mail, UUNet, or Melbourne IT, if we wanted to start up you know a new business idea it would be millions of dollars worth of investment. And so that's a big barrier of entry cost. You want to be pretty confident that that idea is going to work. And if it didn't work, you're probably not going to get a second chance in that organization. But with cloud, you know, making available to all customers some pretty advanced technologies across infrastructure, I mean, these days, artificial intelligence and machine learning and deep learning environments, and you can access this for free in the free tier in some cases through to you know a couple of dollars a month. Suddenly we're seeing people with these ideas experimenting with the ideas and coming up with new things uh, that were just not even possible or just too risky to try in the past. Yeah, that's cool. So um, looking at India, we, we you've spent some time. 
Have you noticed that there's a you know there's really a big increase in terms of startups there that have been you know I guess following in the footsteps of of, of what we've seen in Silicon Valley, but uh, by leveraging leveraging the cloud, um, you know being being much easier to um, uh, to do whether it's from India or you know I've I've had or got friends in uh, in the valley that are from India and so they've they maybe started with their ideas in India and then and then uh, you know headed off to Silicon Valley to sort of get exposure and and funding and things like that but uh, yeah it would it would seem as though the the opportunities are it's sort of much easier to get started these days yeah I think the getting started for a startup in any country is a lot easier these days I think where it gets interesting is what happens. When you've kind of proved that the idea or the business uh, model behind your startup is successful, where do you go then? And I think that's interesting that you're seeing companies, some of them still go through the classic of, okay, proved in my local market, now I'm going to go to America, which it's still one of the biggest markets for access to VC capital. And I mean, let's be honest, it's got a huge market addressable that's a pretty fast adopter of technology. But you're starting to see other trends too now where startups are almost marketing themselves on lifestyle and work-life balance and you know right here in New Zealand I mean fantastic country to live great education system and smart people and you know right now in the global climate you're actually seeing people look at New Zealand as a good safe place to come and live and so it'll be you're saying that because you've got customers here Aussies don't talk about New Zealand like that you know, I think I've been out of Australia for a long time <laughs> <laughs> maybe Sorry, I'm a wannabe to throw, Kiwi I had to throw that in there <laughs> alright keep it coming yeah no that's good yeah but uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's yeah. this idea of in the past you almost had to take the entire business overseas but these yes. days with global platforms I can run the business in any country and I can just use the scalability of the platforms uh, that I build the business on to take me into new markets, whether it be America, whether it be Europe, whether it be into India itself, uh, Japan, for example, even China these days. Mm. So when you're going around visiting a lot of uh, different countries, I imagine a, a lot of that is dealing with some of the, the biggest the biggest entities, the biggest multinationals and so on. Um, what sort of interactions do you have with some of those smaller players and the startups? What do you get to see? What's what's interesting out there that you're seeing that that most uh, you know most listeners, myself included, probably aren't aren't seeing? What are the the, the trends and the you know some of those interactions uh, that you've had? So what's what's interesting is. I kind of play at both ends of the spectrum. So I work with some of the big customers with some challenging problems, but also the startups. And what I find funny is they both want to know about each other. So the big enterprises are really interested in how do the startups have this agility? How do they, you know, how do they take these risks and bet the whole business almost on these ideas? They want to bring that culture into themselves. And then I talk to the startups and they're like, how do these guys scale? How have they survived for decades? Uh, how do they have more than one application? Because what's interesting, you know, the difference I think between startups and enterprises is startups typically have one application and their entire business is built around it and it can be a very big application. But then enterprises can have hundreds, if not thousands of applications making up their business model. And each of those, some of them can be quite big, but you know, very different type of environment. And startups ultimately will hopefully transition more towards that enterprise uh, scale over time. And it's interesting just watching you know, as they grow and evolve. And the question I just ask is, you know, how is each other doing it? And I find it interesting. They both want to kind of learn from each other, but... It's a bit of an awkward date sometimes between them. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Now, looking at the the, the, the largest style firms, often 
what we see is they, t- they tend to get, um, you know, bogged down with legacy systems, old stuff, because they've been around for a long time. Um, you know, we, we've just had the British Airways having a big outage. Now, I don't know what all their technologies are that, that failed on them, but, you know, my pick is based on them talking about sort of, you know, a power surge or, or outage, you know, impacting them that, uh, you know, we're probably talking about something that's uh, that's not super cutting edge and, and sitting uh, in the Amazon cloud or anyone else's um, cloud. Um, it's often, often seems to be hard for these large organisations to get from that technology that, you know, they invested a lot in 20, 30 years ago and then they built all these other things on top of and around uh, to the latest stuff. How, how are you seeing people tackle that? Because obviously, you know, Amazon has some, uh, some things to help, um, but there's a lot of pieces to that, that puzzle and it can take a long time, right? It can. And so we refer to this as the technical debt that you build up over time. And it's interesting as we talk about in the industry, this pace of innovation is increasing, or a side effect of that ever-increasing pace is also your technical debt is also growing at a faster pace. And the challenge is, it's how do you keep a balance of the net new, the greenfield, the fun projects, which are going to attract your brightest and smartest staff, but then you've got the legacy systems that you know, have been around for a long time. Let's be honest, they're not always built on the, the most sexy of technologies uh, today, but they're the ones that actually run your business and make the money. And so I think it's about how do you keep a balance and keep your brighter staff also interested in the older systems and having a plan around how do we take and these older systems are often monolithic applications. You know, it's kind of this one big app with all this functionality running, you know, potentially on a, on a mainframe or a midframe type system. How do we start breaking it up into smaller and smaller components? And you see this, you know, over the over the past you know probably decade or so you've seen this transition from the monolith applications truth to uh, service oriented architectures which started bringing you know SOAP and XML in and we had defined APIs between the services to today the cutting edge is you know microservices which are these small you know very you know, kind of single function bits of code and then you connect all these microservices together and you can create pretty complex applications and I think for these organizations that have built up these large technical debts it's just about how do you find the easy ways or the low-hanging fruit on how to take that monolith and start wrapping it in APIs and then start breaking chunks off and re-implementing them uh, using cutting-edge technologies. Oh, that's good. And in terms of the, the, the smaller firms, the startups, what are the sorts of challenges that you see them typically dealing with day-to-day? I think the, what's interesting is in a startup in today, if you come up with a hot idea with the power of kind of this instant world of communication and social media, if you pop, you can pop really quickly. And you really have one chance to ride that wave. If you miss it, if your application doesn't scale, the business doesn't scale, people are not going to come back for a second chance. And I think that is really at the forefront of startups is it's hard to predict that, but you know, how do they ensure that the application, the infrastructure is going to scale when they most need it? And you know, one space you see this a lot in is actually in the gaming industry. So you know, for example, you launch a new game, that initial launch day, it's make or break. You can't have a relaunch of a game. Uh, and so you just see these spikes where they're you know, almost hundredfold increase in traffic over previous games. 
And then it's just an interesting question of how long is it going to last? It might drop off really quickly. It may sustain for quite a while. Uh, and I find that a, it's a really interesting engineering problem uh, to have because in many ways it's unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's the un- unpredictable stuff that uh, yeah, catches you out. <laughs> gets you. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, looking, looking, you know, well, clo- close to home for uh, f- you know for me and um, and the majority of our listeners. Looking at New Zealand, I'm interested. What are the what are the things that you know, um, or the organisations here in New Zealand, maybe you know, into Australia as well, um, that you've enjoyed interacting with that have been doing some interesting stuff. And you spoke about some of those and, and brought some of them on stage for the keynote this morning. In fact, you've got a, a little wearable on uh, there at the moment that's um, designed predominantly for people a bit younger than you are. Tell, tell us a little bit about this one. Yeah, so Ella Nation uh, is a startup based out of Australia who is really interested in taking wearable technologies you know, and health and gaming and how do you combine these together? So they kind of thought, what if you had a Fitbit for kids and based on your activity, you know, for example, number of steps you take, that unlocks levels in a game. And you can start doing some interesting things. You can build community around that. You can compete against uh, you know, family members, etc. And for parents, you can kind of lock down, okay, only 30 minutes a day of game time. And you're only going to get that if you do a certain amount of physical activity. I think it's an absolutely fascinating way of dealing with you know, some of the health issues around kids not getting enough exercise or being glued to the iPads uh, through to, if you think about some of the analytics that could start providing around activity levels in kids, I mean, this could be one of the first ways of recording this uh, in a way that's not too intrusive. So I think just fascinating unlocking of uh, new insights that we just haven't thought of. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm definitely keen to um, uh, connect with them. We've been looking at over the last uh, week or so uh, a, a brand you would have come across um, called Milo uh, who, have, who have launched a little uh, uh, wearable as well. Uh, which, which crosses over to a, a small degree, and that it's it's targeted at kids as well. What are some of the other ones we've had? Um, Push Pay, who have uh, just you know been doing very very well here yeah. uh, of recent recent times. Um, you know what what can you tell us about um, yeah their work and and how uh, how they've been able to utilise um, the cloud and in, in terms of their growth because they've uh, they've been growing pretty quickly and done some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I think Pushpay is almost like a secret success company in New Zealand. You, you might not have heard of them, but they're the largest collections uh, tool or service for churches and education bodies around uh, handling donations and driving community engagement within those communities. And what's interesting is it's all mobile uh, app-delivered and so they need a really fast pace of agility. And I love uh, Josh, who's their VP of engineering this morning. He had this great quote, which is, you know, he says to his developers, we don't pay you to code. You know, you're here to deliver functionality to the customers. And I, in some ways, that's such a crystal clear way of saying, you know, that's what's important. And you kind of think back to some of the metrics we used to have for developers around, you know, you must write this many lines of code a day. <laughs> yeah. and that's where things like Java boilerplate code started coming out. You know, I just hit my metric. Yeah, but what did you actually produce? What functionality did you add? Uh, and so I really like that that clear message from Pushpay, which is, that, you know, they're just fanatical about driving features for their customers. And, you know, he gave the example where, you know, in the US, there's, uh, you know, at tax time, they have to generate these PDFs individually. And so they created 50,000 plus PDFs at short notice. 
but using uh, some of the technologies on AWS, it cost them three cents. I mean, you can't complain about that. Yeah, no, it, it was it was a good story, and you know, I think the feedback you know from their customers was that you know the customers that use this particular service. 40 hours work was their, their typical to yeah. uh, to generate uh, you know I guess their, their you know tax receipts and the amount of involvement from them dropped down to to about four hours and I'm you know I could quite imagine you could probably automate the process down to uh, down to nothing and you know what stood out about that to me was I mean I'd heard you know understood a bit about push pay services and what it looked like but I didn't know that they were doing these sort of value adds, and I can just imagine how much stickier that makes their clients when they've been able to turn around very quickly, develop this new thing, uh, you know, utilizing the latest to technology, drawing on computing power that they might not have had locally, and uh, and you know, suddenly they've got a whole lot of sort of raving fans amongst their customer base uh, that. Yeah, they might have liked them before, but this just takes it to the next level. If you've just saved somebody 36 hours, uh, I'd say you know, people are going to be pretty pleased about that. Yeah, and I think it's all about just finding that simple use case. I mean, it's PDFs. It's, again, PDFs are not a fun thing. If you've ever tried writing software for PDFs, it's a bit of a nightmare. But you know, that solved a real customer issue, 40 hours of effort down to four hours. Yeah, that's just gold. Mm, uh, as mm. you say, it's going to drive stickiness, and uh, it'd be interesting to see how they develop that f- uh, going in the into the future. Yeah, and um, have you had much involvement with uh, with Zero? And obviously, they've you know they've moved their uh, you know systems. It's you know it's been a, a while now since they've moved uh, things across to AWS, but uh, they seem pretty happy about that uh, that transition. Yeah, I've uh, been involved with Zero from the start uh, of the engagement with AWS, and I mean, that is a huge startup in its own right. It's, uh, you know, connecting businesses around the world uh, with accounting software. And, you know, they have some massive infrastructure behind the scenes. And you know, I was thinking it was just the other week they passed their, you know, millionth customer. And so a lot of database technology, it's accounting. So, I mean, you do not want to lose data. Their security is absolutely important for them. So working with them as they transition from their uh, platforms they had built uh, to how they want to build these on AWS and take advantage of some of these new technologies has been really kind of exciting because they have pushed the boundaries on what you can do uh, at that scale. And now what's really interesting is as they're now comfortable with using the AWS platform and they start now looking at some of the newer services like artificial intelligence and machine learning and start thinking about how can you apply that to the world of accounting? I can't wait to see what they unlock uh, as they start playing with those and having some hackathons with their customers around those functionalities. Yeah, I think that that stuff's pretty interesting. And yeah, I think you know, Rod Drury mentioned that their their competitors haven't you know haven't generally made that same uh, move yet. So you know, his perspective is it you know it just makes them that much more uh, agile and you know ability to move uh, you know very very quickly, and it's going to really help them from a competitive uh, perspective. So um, yeah, I'm I'm really curious and look forward to what we actually see coming through. Yeah, what I like about Zero is you know they are a big company now, and but they're still incredibly agile, incredibly fast, and still wanting to disrupt uh, that market. So I mean that's good good passion to have and uh, we look forward to you know working with them to help them achieve that yeah any other um, any other firms that are doing uh, doing cool things locally that uh, are yeah. worth mentioning I think you know if I look at Australia Atlassian Software I mm-hmm. mean 
poster child of the open source world, started with you know Jira and Confluence and helping you know this creating the tool sets behind you know what does DevOps these days. But what I love about Atlassian is when I travel around the world and I go to these big enterprises they're all starting to use Atlassian and it's kind of this reverse takeover of the cool open source world and uh, you know the technologies they were using and now they're being used at scale in the enterprises they start running you know for example Kanbans and uh, trying to bring this DevOps culture and agile project uh, methodologies into their organizations the same tools are now being used by the startups and the enterprise so you're seeing this merging happening and uh, again I think Atlassian uh, in terms of what they're going to be able to do as the whole industry starts shifting towards this uh, they're going to have an incredibly bright future as well good and what's really what should we be expecting from AWS in, in the years ahead the, the, the thing for AWS is, you know, it, for us, it comes back to just listening to that customer feedback. We're going to continue to innovate of the platform. You know, we still think of it as just day one. It's, we've been around in this space for more than a decade now. If I look at the list of things we still want to achieve, it's as long as it's ever been. Uh, the scaling of the platform, you know, as our customers build more and more complex uh, systems on top of us, as we see customers use IoT, that uh, drives millions of connected devices. These devices are generating data. That data then needs to be processed and analyzed. It just creates all these new opportunities to apply new techniques to driving business insight or business growth and we're just going to keep innovating and having these tools you know this morning I was talking about as we start transitioning to these exabyte style uh, scale data sets you need fundamentally different tools to engage with it and yes. you know watching as that develops and matures uh, you know, yeah now uh, something I often uh, come back to when I'm talking with people is here in New Zealand, we've got so many smaller businesses, smaller organisations, and they often don't have a lot of in-house expertise around technology things, yet utilising technology well will make all the difference to them. Are there any patterns that you're seeing out there where, uh, you know, how smaller organisations are are making good use of of the latest and greatest that's coming through in the cloud, whether it's you know working with partners or or other uh, you know patterns that you're seeing. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of trends emerging. First is this concept of insourcing coming back in. You know, the idea of being able to outsource your innovation or outsource your core competitive difference it just doesn't work uh, and so you're seeing insourcing being a big part of it the second is the rise of what I call the niche partners these are partners who focus on one or two things or a particular industry and they do it incredibly well uh, and you know here at the AWS Auckland Summit there's over 30 partners down on the expo floor if you just walk around you see the differences and how they've kind of separated themselves out into the different focus areas it gives you a really good view of what's happening in the industry uh, and then third pattern is if they're insourcing and they're using partners is also being really clear about it's okay to start sharing and so you're starting to see the rise of you know for example meetup groups and greater collaboration across tech teams as they kind of realize actually sharing these insights and sharing the learnings is better for everyone in the industry kind of all boats rise on that rising tide versus locking that up and keeping it kind of a secret ingredients it's, it's actually not your competitive advantage how you did it the competitive advantage is the data and the community you've built around it what i'm curious about there's there's so many available uh, technologies from AWS 
and I guess to you know data nerds and tech heads, there's a lot of cool, exciting stuff. What is it that at the moment for you is the most exciting thing within the world of AWS? Wow, you're going to make me pick one. Uh, <laughs> see, the AWS platform's got 92 major services. Uh, if I had to pick one right now, I, I still love Lambda in terms of the serverless functions. Just this there's absolute simplicity and ease as a software developer being able to write a functional piece of code and just upload it to AWS Lambda and then it just is executed when it's triggered and at no point did I think about an operating system at no point did I think about the capacity requirements at no point did I think about you know kind of locking it down and securing all the stuff that is behind it I never thought about the fault tolerance it's all just taken care of me and you know as a developer that means I can just focus on writing really good code or you know really interesting feature sets to the customers and then that's just Lambda and then you start combining that with like API Gateway which then gives you a secure battle hardened way of interacting with that from the outside world you start building pretty complex applications and websites and mobile apps out of these really simple building blocks and you know, I just uh, yeah, I, that's the part I, I love the most. It's just these simple ingredients that you can do amazing things with. Cool. Now, there is a huge interest at the moment. We, you know, we're moving into a world where uh, yeah, we're, we're seeing a lot of growth in robotics, machine learning. What are you seeing in that area that's, that's you know, sparking interest for you in terms of new things that are, that are coming, the way maybe you anticipate people will be using your platforms going forward? So I think with uh, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, again, there's a couple of different ways to break out. One is, one of the things we're seeing is these different ways of interacting with technology. You know, it wasn't that long ago that it was all through a screen uh, or a keyboard or a mouse or touch interface. But these days, you can have intelligent conversations with uh, technology where you can talk, it can talk back to you, uh, you can show it images, and it can understand the image and deal with things. So suddenly, you've got this kind of almost using your five senses. We haven't got taste quite right yet, but uh, maybe we've got four of the senses there to work with. And so this is opening up new areas of innovation of applications and startups based on this. And then when you apply that to industries, I mean, imagine in health, for example, where you know, in a hospital environment, touching things is actually probably you know, not the, the good thing to do from a hygiene point of view. So being able to have these voice-driven command prompts can uh, have real impacts on the hygiene or health aspects in the health environment or in environments where, you know, for example, uh, public safety for police officers, they're starting to use voice-driven prompts because they want to keep their hands free. You don't want a police officer typing on their phone while they're and head down looking at that. They should be looking at you know, what they're focusing on and have their hands free just to, in case they need to take action. And so that's one area of AI and machine learning. And then the other area that's really interesting for me at the moment and where I see a lot of active customers is as we build these ever-increasing data sets that are at the moment you know, terabytes to petabytes, you know, for some customers exabytes, for us humans to try and understand the scale of that data, let alone find patterns of behavior in it, it's beyond us. And so you need these intelligent systems that can kind of mine through this data, look for patterns or look for insights 
and then give these back to us so that we can work out how to imply that insight to the business and take advantage of it. And again, I think it's early days of what you can do there, but you know, you've seen that, for example, on Amazon.com with the recommendation engines for quite a while, uh, smarter searching capabilities. But again, you look at how people are looking to use this in the context of social media, for example. You know, What are the social engagements that actually drive activity for marketers? We're just tapping or scratching the surface of what's possible there. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I think you're right. And yeah, when we, st- I guess, start to see some of the examples and the ways that technologies are getting used, yeah, you realize the reality that there wouldn't, there aren't any manual ways to, uh, to achieve the same sort of outcomes. Yeah, I think, uh, personally, I think I would view it almost as a punishment if I had to hand trawl through hundreds of terabytes of data <laughs> looking for something. It's uh, the days of using Orc and Grep and a bit of Perl uh, to work on those data sets is uh, way, way behind us now. Now, before, uh, yeah, before we finish up, I'm curious whether you can share any insights uh, around... Alexa, Amazon Echo um, devices. There's certainly a few of our listeners that have had these sort of things shipped in from the US. Uh, yeah, we have listeners who don't have uh, the same sightedness, don't get to enjoy the new, the nice view that we're looking at right now over uh, over Auckland Harbour, um, and and wanting to utilise you know some of this new technology. Have you got any insights on the I guess the challenges of uh, of bringing that product, you know, it falls outside of sort of your your day to day remit. But um, I'm, you know, I'm curious, you know, how soon do we see this uh, technology becoming sort of broadly available in every market, or are there lots and lots of big challenges to uh, to make that happen? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, Amazon Echo has been a popular device, and you know, I love that there's a black market of Echoes as they're imported around the world and uh, see them being used in countries that they're definitely not being sold in. But from our perspective, I mean, Echo has been a very hot product. It's just keeping up with demand in the countries we have it in uh, has been a challenge. So we'll see what happens in that space. But what's been really interesting with uh, the Echo, which uses Alexa, which is the voice service, is for AWS, we, based on that interest we saw, we actually took the technology behind Alexa, turned that into standard services and have now offered that out to customers. And so you have uh, AWS uh, or Amazon Poly, which allows you to take text and turn it into speech in a number of different languages in male and female. And then we have Amazon Lex, which can take speech and turn that into text, which you can then put into, you know, for example, Lambda to take action on and then take that answer from Lambda pipe it back through Polly and have a conversation and so on stage this morning you saw me having some fun with the smart assistant where we're having a conversation and what's interesting is so in New Zealand where you can't buy an Echo any device with a speaker or microphone you can use Lex and Polly kind of build your own Echo device uh, and so we see customers doing that you can have a Raspberry Pi and kind of uh, build something yourself and hack away at it and uh, create something unique just for yourself yeah so there's nothing to hold, hold people back from uh, dabbling with the technology or, or applying it to a, a, a business problem no, and this is the great thing about right now is all these tools are being made available to you, uh, you know, and for builders out there, which a lot of us are, you know, being able to build these things, uh, it's a lot of fun and it's kind of like getting back to hacking away at things and pulling them apart and understanding how they are and putting them back together in new novel concepts. 
That's great. Well, thanks very much for your time, Glenn. Uh, now, if listeners want to track you down, Twitter, or what's what's the best way to keep up with what you're doing around the place? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn, uh, just yeah. search for Glengore, or on uh, Twitter, at Glengore, uh, you'll find me. But uh, with my travel schedule, I have to admit, uh, it's a bit chaotic sometimes, uh, what's there or not there at times. But uh, thank you, Paul. It's a really enjoyed the time on this podcast. Great. Well, thanks for sharing your insights. Thank you. Cheers. The New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT.